0: Genesis 4, Cain is brought to the forefront here, and I've suggested that we are supposed to see Cain as a second Adam, all right? So when you look in Genesis 4 at the first few verses, the man was intimate with his wife Eve, she conceived and gave birth to Cain and said, I have made a male child, or really I have gotten a man or have made a man with the help of the Lord. So, there's this idea that the word of the Lord that the woman would have um, pain in childbirth, but there would be childbirth, that's coming true, and that childbirth is an indication of a mitigation of the curse of death. But it's also picturing the man and the woman here as image bearers of God, in a sense, doing godlike activity, making a man, making a person. So, God made a man in Genesis 2. Now, um, the man and the woman made a man with the help of the Lord in Genesis 4. His name is Cain, and she also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a shepherd of the flocks, but Cain worked the ground. So Cain is described as a worker of the ground. He's the firstborn son of the man and the woman. And the, this description of being a worker of the ground is the same description of the man. He was going to be a worker of the ground. So we're intended to anticipate that Cain is going to be the one who is the fulfillment of the promise and of the prophetic promise of Genesis 3.15, where the seed of the woman would strike the head of the serpent, right? So Cain, we're supposed to think, is a new and better Adam, right? But Abel presented an offering, Cain presented an offering, Cain's was rejected, And we briefly hit this last week, but I want to draw your attention to Genesis 4-7, where the Lord says to Cain, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So Cain has been authorized to rule over sin in the same way that Adam was authorized to guard the garden. I think there's a parallel being drawn here and in, in the way that we've decided the man should have guarded the garden, kept the serpent out of the garden. Cain now should guard himself and keep the sin that's crouching, waiting for him at bay. He should crush the sin. He should defeat the sin, but instead Cain is going to exercise that authority and that power in a different way. So verse 8, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. So we are seeing already a distortion of authority. And this is going to help us as we consider the, the human authorities and our own proclivity in coercing other people and in stomping over other people to get what we want. That authority, though a good thing and a gift from God, can be distorted really, really easily and so distorted that instead of producing life, it's going to produce death. The first death, we have the curse of death for eating of the fruit. The first death isn't a direct execution of someone by God, but it's one of God's image bearers who rises up against another and, and kills this guy. So the, the curse of death is here and it's very, very real. And in the way that our text presents it, it's this premeditated fratricide. You have this one brother who's luring his other brother into the field and then murdering him. So the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? Again, I think these questions are questions that are intended to draw repentance and confession out of the individual who's broken the covenant. In this case, both breaking covenant with God, faithfulness with God and with his brother. And these questions are intended to elicit a response of repentance. Instead, Cain replies, I don't know. Where is your brother Abel? The Lord says, I don't know. He replied, am I my brother's guardian? So we get the idea that Cain has probably hidden Abel in the ground. He's probably buried him in the ground somewhere or hidden him somewhere in the same way that Adam and Eve fled and hid in, in the shrubs. Now Cain has hid his brother. And when he's asked about it, he replies, am I my brother's guardian? And this is the same term that's used for Adam guarding the garden. I think Shamar, I think we talked about that, the, the guy I knew who's UFC fighter Shamar. That's the guy you want guarding you. Well, that guarding responsibility has been distorted now. And instead of protecting the younger brother, the older brother rises up against him and kills him. And then when he's asked about it, he acts as if he has no responsibility to his fellow man. And again, I think this should just orient us to believe that you and I have an orientation to other people where, where we are likely to fail to fulfill responsibility to them. We're likely to rise up against them and manipulate them or crush them rather than to show them faithfulness and love. We We don't have a precise way of knowing how this happens in each of us, but the Bible shows that from the very beginning, um, that's that's who humans are. They're covenant breakers. That's how we're described in Hosea 6, 6, and 7. Like Adam, they were covenant breakers. And that's what we see going on here. And so none of us should be so prideful to say that as I consider my relationship with other people, they're likely to be in the wrong, and I'm not likely to be in the wrong if I were in Adam's spot, I would have done something different. Well, there is someone else who was in Adam's spot, and he did the exact same thing, except it's now escalated, and it results in immediate death. Therefore, when we, when we think about our relationship to other people, we, we need to know that this is deeply embedded in our hearts. And I don't think that the biggest problem with our covenant breaking with other people is a distinction in skin color. I think that plays into it and we so distort what God has done in creating humanity that we do have these metrics of measuring people by, including ethnicity and skin color and a host of other things, but I want to suggest that there's something that's deeper than that problem and and really that fuels that problem down the road. So if we don't see it here and we want to start talking about solving racism, we're, we're not going to get very far if we're just looking at the fruits of a deeper inclination to break covenant with our fellow man and to go beyond simply breaking covenant, but to rise up against and conquer and crush and demolish that fellow man. So what I'm, what I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to make here is that I think we should be inclined to say that racism is not something that's made up. I think we're going to have to later on work to define what that is precisely, but we need to say that there's something in us that, makes, that, that produces an environment that racism can thrive and really any other kind of abuse of authority and breaking of relationship with people can thrive because there's something in our hearts that cultivates that. We, we don't have the language for it yet in, our, in where we've gone in the Bible. So far, we just have this idea of covenant breaking. And I think we've got to start there. And, and the Bible will fill in some more lines. But if we're not addressing these social issues beginning here, then the most that we can offer are provisional answers and crutches that sort of are, well, maybe band-aids for, for the bullet wound idea. We, we aren't going to have good answers if we're not starting here. I think this is a problem for our world at large trying to solve these issues while simultaneously saying that there's no place for God or the Bible or a Christian worldview or way of being in the world that needs to be applied to find an answer. And that's why I think we're endlessly frustrated we have Politicians who write legislation that ultimately is maybe necessary but probably misguided, and can at best sort of spray spray the fire hose at the smoke and maybe some of the flames, but not actually get to the root of the problem. This means then that Christians have a a heavy responsibility in thinking about issues of race and ethnicity and discrimination and abuse of power, because I think that we have a better answer than anything the world can provide for us. Ultimately, that answer, I think, will come in in the sharing of the gospel and in a calibration of our hearts and life to the teaching of the scriptures but the 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 hope that we're going to have for what's being labeled as racial harmony is not going to be found in a bill that's passed in a legislature somewhere, nor will it be found in a in a riot somewhere, nor will it be found in um just a changing of power somewhere you know instead it's going to be found by transformed hearts in the gospel and While someone might push back on this and say, well, but we're living in a world of unbelievers and you're wasting time by thinking about this, I I think that's misguided. We have to say, sure, the solution might be slower going this way, but it's going to be a genuine solution. It's not just going to kick the can down the road. There's a responsibility then on each of us to relate to one another here and as we go into the world with faithfulness and steadfast love, modeling the kind of relationship that draws people in to see that Christians, though not perfect, are making headway in finding harmony with people who look different than them. That's the way that I think you and I are going to carry out our responsibility in what's being labeled as fighting racism or being an anti-racist. I don't think it's helpful to, you know, people will say that identify I'm an anti-racist. Well, I think we want to say we are pro-gospel, pro-recreation of humanity. And in so doing, we think that is what's going to ultimately eliminate any racist ideas that are, are in our world. Um, In the weeks ahead, I hope to talk more about how different groups of people in our modern society define racism and talk about it. Uh, Because some things are labeled racism uh, that I don't think are a problem and that I, I don't think that we need to concern ourselves about. And that's maybe dangerous to say in our culture and society, but I think we need to push people when they're talking about these things to define what they mean and as we do, we'll find I think some very big problems in our society that relates to, relates to ethnic harmony. But then I think we're going to also find some red herrings that you know, they're, they're making a problem out of something that's not a problem. So we, we need to work carefully, but we have to ground ourselves in these sort of stories in the Bible that show us who we really are so that our inclination is towards mercy and repentance and seeing ourselves as sinful. Because if we, did, if we get so caught up denying those things, then you know, we, we never actually figure out what the problems are because we're just so focused on justifying ourselves. Well, as we'll see down the road, we're not the ones who justify ourselves we're going to look to different justification and in that confidence and in that freedom we can then press forward in looking for solutions both in terms of transformed hearts but i think also in influencing the political systems we're in especially at a local level to to pursue ethnic harmony and flourishing for all people questions or comments there i in one way that's a just a simple introductory point but um maybe, maybe not super simple. Okay. I I also want to say that this, what we see in Cain here in rising up against his brother, we should say we are just like that. And apart from God's restraining grace, this is who we are and what we'd be. And apart from God's common grace, this is what we'd see everywhere in the world. And and we see it in a lot of different forms in the world. Uh, But the it's not just racism that comes out of this. And it's not just abuse of authority that comes out of this. This is just an indication that there's something in us that's broken and that's gone wrong. And that I think is a result of that initial, initial covenant breaking with God by the man and the woman in the garden. Now, I want to connect another thread here. The Lord continues to go on and he, in verse 11, tells Cain so now you are cursed, alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood you have shed. Now, the, if you work the ground, it will never give you its yield. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. Here, we've talked a bit about the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, right? The seed of the woman crushing the serpent. Um, but it seems that there will be those who, are, who can be identified as the offspring of the serpent. And it's in this verse that our view of Cain is changed from a new and better Adam, an offspring of the woman, to seeing Cain as an offspring of the serpent. When God cursed the serpent, he said, curse are you from all the other animals. You know, it's just this preposition in Hebrew, and it's mirrored in this language for Cain. Curse are you from the ground. In the What the author is doing, it doesn't come through so well in, in our English translation, but he's identifying Cain in terms of the serpent. So the serpent is a room men, now Cain is a room men. Those, that's the exact wording there. And so we need to understand that being a seed of the woman who is going to crush the serpent and crush crush sin, It's not a genetic thing that brings us into that identity. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is not based on genetics, but it's based on our response to our covenantal Lord and our relationship to one another. That's how people start to get identified as being a seed of the woman or a seed of the serpent all the way through. We move down the list here. Cain responds to the Lord ironically saying, you know, I'm being banished from the face of the earth and really from God's presence. Whoever finds me will kill me. So you have this guy who just killed his brother who is now suggesting that God's judgment on him is unjust because someone might kill him. And right away, we start to see the self-justifying inclination of our hearts. We start seeing how we don't have a good grasp on what just judgment is. So Cain, who totally deserved to be killed by his family, you know, essentially everyone on planet earth at this time is related to Cain in some way. And, and so Cain perhaps is worried that this, you know, um, revenge, this avenger is going to come and kill him or something. But then God replied to him kindly. I don't think in a redemptive way that brings him back into this line of the seed of the woman, but the Lord replies to him with mercy It says, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And this is just a figurative way of he's going to get the full punishment that's due for killing Cain. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Now, sometimes people have made this mark on Cain out to be something odd. And sometimes this is made out to, to relate to racial ideas. Other times it's it's just made out to be just speculative things that are weird. I, I think what's going on here, and I can't, I mean, this is speculation too. I guess anything's speculation at this point. But the, the word that's here is oath, okay? That's a Hebrew word and it comes into English that way. But it's the same word that's talked about when God put a sign in the skies for Noah that he wouldn't destroy the, the world again. I, I don't know that we necessarily need to see this as a physical mark on Cain, but that in this maybe something more as a, a covenant oath or an oath of promise, something that indicated to Cain that the Lord would keep His word. Um, I don't I don't think we need to see this as a physical change to Cain or a mark on Cain in any way. That could be the case, but I think it's more suggestive of God reinforcing His word with a promise, with an oath or a marker of some sort, not physically on Cain, that God would keep his promise that if anyone killed him, he would exercise full vengeance on them. Um, So whoever, therefore, would find him would not kill him. And then verse 16, we have a, a recapitulation of events, the same result of sin happening again. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So the, the man and the woman were removed from God's presence in the garden towards the east, and, and now they're further removed here with Cain as he his broken covenant once again. And then I think it's interesting as we skim down to verse 25, Adam was intimate with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has given me another child in the place of Abel since Cain killed him. And here, the the word is offspring, or the, God has given me a seed, okay? And uh, I think what she's suggesting is that I had initially anticipated that Cain was this seed that would take care of our problem. Well, now we're looking to Seth. And what this begins is a hope, essentially, that carried on throughout all of Israel, that a male child would be the seed, okay? That there would be the seed of the woman that would... Do something to reverse their circumstance, and this idea gets developed more as other events happen in Israel's history to this messianic expectation. Now, there there were multiple messiahs that were expected by different groups in different ways, but I want us to recognize that from the very beginning, this first man and woman are putting hope in the promise of God for a reversal of the curse of death and the one who brought that death into the world, really the serpent. Through an offspring. So, this idea of offspring becomes really, really important. Okay, question, questions on those matters here. All right, I, I want to hit two more ideas related to offspring and seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, and identifying our, ourselves as part of this matrix a little bit down the road. But then also one more statement from the Lord that indicates who we are at our core and why we can expect problems of authority and human relations in the world. Okay, the first piece on the line of the woman, um, in Genesis 5, we have this genealogy of Adam. Verse 1, this is a document containing the family records of Adam, on the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. When they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. The, the point I want to make here is twofold. A, Cain is written out of God's story. We never hear about Cain again In the genealogy of Adam, or really even in the Old Testament, it's not until there's later reflection on the events of Cain murdering his brother that we hear of Cain again. So when we set ourselves against God in humanity, there's a sense in which we get written out of God's story. And this is true over and over again. This happens to Potiphar's wife. She turned herself against Joseph. She lied about Joseph. We're supposed to, when we get to Joseph, sort of see him as something of the seed of the woman as well. Well, what happens to Potiphar's wife? She ends up getting written out of the story and we never hear about her again. Well, we see this in Ruth. What happens to Orpah? She gets written out of the story and we never see her again. And over and over again, as we see individuals set themselves against God and humanity and fail to enter into covenant relationship with God, they just simply get written out of the story And when there's no repentance by these individuals, there's no continuation of a hope for them that we see in this Old Testament scripture. When individuals do repent, they find hope and they remain in God's story. And the most obvious example, when we're talking about seed of the woman here, is King David. King David, in a lot of ways, was an awful guy. We shouldn't have this idea of David as this guy who would be our friend and someone we'd love to be around. Instead, he's a guy who committed adultery, he's a guy who murdered the wife or the husband of the, the woman that he essentially raped, I think, because you've got this king making a woman come to his place. That's sort of just what was going on there. You've got a bad dude in a lot of ways, but in repentance there's restoration and there's a continuation as, some, as someone orients their life to God, even in the midst of their failures. And that brings us great hope, I think, because we often fail and in ways that are nearly as bad as David, if not you know just as bad as we think in terms of the breaking of a covenant. But there's hope and forgiveness and restoration as we respond to God's questions of what have you done with confession and repentance. The second piece of this line I want to emphasize is that Adam's son is described as being in his likeness and according to his image. And I think what's being communicated here is that the original creation of mankind in the image and likeness of God was not a one-time event That is forever gone after that first couple, or that is now, you know, gone after what's traditionally called the fall into sin. Instead, we get the idea that Adam's offspring are image bearers of God as well. And this is confirmed to us in Genesis 9, where there's a punishment for murder, and the justification or the explanation for capital punishment is that. Man is made in God's image. It's what we should take away from that is that even after sin, every human being, even those human beings who we wouldn't fully identify as the seed of the woman or in right relationship to God, every human being is an image bearer of God. That means there is an inherent dignity that's afforded to every single person. But it's not a dignity based on that person It's a dignity based on the person whose image that person is in, okay? So our human dignity is not by virtue of ourselves. It's not generated by ourselves. It's by virtue of every single person being made in God's image. This is an important distinction in a distinct way of thinking when we read statements by a lot of the secular world saying Every human has dignity. They're right to say that, but they're only rooting that dignity in some sort of uh, you know, lower, lowest common denominator. We, we don't have anything to base this on other than our common humanity. And so it's this kind of circular reasoning. Every human has dignity because they are human, therefore they have dignity. You know, that, that's the way that human dignity is spoken of in terms of our world today. We want to affirm the true part of that. Every human has dig- dignity by virtue of being human, but being human means to be God's image and likeness. So we, we have something that's rooted deeper than just a small circular reasoning. We, we want to think more widely about this. This is important because if someone in our society is shown to lack personhood, then they also don't get dignity. All right? So, so the argument is every human has dignity by virtue of being a human. And what it means to be human is to have personhood. And usually personhood doesn't get defined. There's not a good metric for measuring personhood. We are saying every person has dignity because they're humans. And every human has dignity because humans are God's image bearers. And that's something that can never be taken away. Um, it's always present. It's part of our ontological reality. It's who we are. It's the essence of who we are. If someone can be shown not to have personhood in America, that person's life is not counted as valuable or having dignity. Unless someone, by virtue of their outside acts as a substitute in a way and in, in, uh, puts dignity on them, in, in personhood on them. This is how we can, in America, simultaneously charge someone for murder of two people when a pregnant woman is killed, and that woman could also go to an abortion clinic and, and kill her baby, and there be no charge of murder there. Uh, it's because in the one case, that infant... In the womb has been denied personhood or been judged as there is no personhood. And in the other case, um, we still have carryover in our law from from when there was this idea that, you know, we didn't distinguish between being a human and having personhood. Um, If we connect our dignity only to our personhood or just our humanity, then as soon as someone can be proved to not have personhood, then there's this idea that we don't owe them the the covenant of humanity the, the steadfast love and in, in faithfulness so abortion comes out of this i think um this right to die movement this kind of euthanasia comes out of this eugenics comes out of this i mean there was an article in the atlantic i think everyone can read a free article or two every month on the atlantic talking about the almost complete wiping out of individuals with down syndrome because there's this idea that they don't have personhood, and so um, let's abort them. And, And there are decisions made every day in this country and across the world to eliminate that life because it doesn't have personhood. So we have to, I think, call people out when they talk about human dignity and push them to see that dignity is rooted more deeply than personhood assigned by someone from the outside. We have dignity assigned by the creator God who made us in his image. And that should make us care about issues like life from womb to tomb, as they say, um, and about our, our fellow humanity in every stage in between. And so we should care about policies that make it really, really challenging for a single mother to make a decision between having, you know, uh, between having a baby and not having a baby when there, when there are policies that make that decision obvious, don't ever have that baby. Um, we need to think about this as it relates to the way that we treat immigrants to our country because they are people with human dignity that's rooted beyond a nationality or beyond personhood or beyond their ability to speak the English language well that's rooted in the, the dignity given by their creator. And while that, what that's going to do is it's going to make us people who don't fit in political parties very well. Um, I, I don't want to jump too far into that, but if you carefully read the kind of policies put out by both of our major parties, both of them fail to value life and human dignity in different ways. And we tend to be able to see the most obvious ones more easily, things like euthanasia or abortion, but often we fail to see important life-sucking, death-giving policies for the spans in between those two markers of life, all right? And I, I, I would encourage you, as you think about your own involvement in politics, if, if you have an inclination to cling tightly to one of these parties, read their policies more carefully and recognize that there is a lack of human dignity being afforded people from both parties in both of their orientations and both of their goals. Now, this gets really complicated and challenging because at that level, you know, it's easier to do this on a city and state level, and I think that's what we should care more about. On the national level, it gets really complex because there are so many long-term things that we just don't understand. How does the economics actually work? Well, most of us haven't, you know, done a lot of studies in these areas, so sometimes we're just guessing at what's going to be life-giving and helpful and what won't. But I think we need to recognize that both of those parties as godless parties, which is what they are, um, fail to connect human dignity to a creator God at a party level. Now, granted, there may be Christians along the way who are thinking rightly and pushing for right things, and I think we need that. I think we need people in politics who are going to represent uh, a Christian idea. Um, but we need to just say that, weirdly, with America came the end of Christendom in in a lot of ways, because there's no establishment of religion. And without an establishment of religion, there's a de-establishment of God. And by de-establishing God, the inalienable rights described in our constitution are now alienable. They, they can be taken away because they're only rooted in the highest thing, which is ourselves. Um, this is not, uh, you know, America's awful. This is just Uh, There are some good things about that, but we just have to recognize that as we try to navigate the challenges that we face with social issues, the answer won't be in our political parties because at best, their ideas of human dignity are rooted in something that humans confer on one another, um, a, a judgment of personhood. And that leaves us as Christians is a people without a city and without a party in a lot of ways. And so we we just have to press forward seeking solutions, working within broken systems. Um, I I think we also just have to say that everything post-sin is going to be broken in some way because there there are people who have evidenced their covenant breakers. And so this idea that we can create a, a perfect society is something that if if we're trying to put that burden on us, we're trying to carry a load that we can never carry. And this idea of a, a perfect kingdom, a perfect politic is not going to be experienced to the new creation. And so we just understand everything we do between now and them are incremental changes and, um, trying to produce life and flourishing wherever we are. And it's just not going to be perfect until, until Christ comes. And if, if, You want to push back and say, well, that's pessimistic. I I would suggest that's right. You should feel pessimistic about our politics, even in the best of situations in this world. The best decade in this country is nothing compared to the recreative work that God is doing and will bring to completion in the perfect rule of Christ. I also want to urge you to think then of the kingdom of Christ in political terms. We very often think that there's nothing political there. But everything that we hear about Jesus rings with political language. Kings and kingdoms and um, those who are citizens of a kingdom. All of this is political language, which should allow us to have bright hopes for the future in Christ and his kingdom. And it should really um, lower our expectations for our political kingdom um, in America and throughout the world as we look at other countries. We just say, let's work for good wherever we can, and let's pray for Christ, the perfect king, to to come and to set all things right. I lost where I was going. To, okay, I think I want to say two more things. In Genesis 9, uh, or sorry, Genesis um, 8, So, Genesis 8, God remembered Noah as well as all the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him on the ark. God caused the wind to pass over the earth and the water began to subside. So, there's this flood that turns the world into a massive cemetery of of people and animals. Um, But then God remembers his people and he is faithful to his covenant. And this language of the wind or the spirit passing over the earth, what we get is this picture of a recreation. The flood was a decreation. The, the, what happens after that is a recreation. And Noah will be pictured as a new Adam. The world is being recreated. And it begins a trajectory of a theme in the Bible of recreation or new creation. And that begins here and it ends with what I was describing with Christ's kingdom. So God has been at work among people from the very beginning to produce a recreation. Um, and, and I think as if if you grew up like I did or read the Bible in the ways that I grew up reading it, I always just imagined we shouldn't care too much about this earth because it's going to be totally destroyed and something new is coming. And in a way that's right, but I think that the way that that's going to happen is much more similar to the decreation of the flood and the recreation on that planet, on this earth. And, and I think this is the first image that we're given when the world was destroyed by flood. It's talked about as being destroyed by fire in the New Testament. Well, I think there's probably greater continuity between the two than, than maybe we would imagine. And I think that should motivate us to be part of God's recreation work now, both in terms of spreading the gospel, but also in working towards social good as, as we go, Okay. Um, but what happens there is, is Noah comes off the ark, he makes a sacrifice. You know, he offers a burnt offering, raising up to God, drawing near to God in that way. And as God is reflecting on this offering from Noah in Genesis 8.21, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings. Even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. This is who we are. This is God's interpretation of even our best of actions. You would expect the response the Lord would give to Noah giving this offering is, in this destruction of those who rejected me, there's now a new humanity whose inclination of heart is going to be righteous from youth onward because there's this offering that I'm receiving. Well, even our best of offerings, as the Lord reflects on that, he is saying and declaring the human heart is evil from youth onward. So what, what I think we have here is now an insight into the Cain and Abel story. Abel was not perfect in his offering I think his heart was evil from the youth onward and Cain was evil from the youth onward. But what what happens with Cain is he fails to respond to God in repentance and confession and covenant faithfulness. Well, here, if Noah, I think, had had the heart of Cain and the attitude of Cain in his offering rather than the heart of Abel, you know, so I think Noah here has the heart of Abel, the, the attitude of Abel in his offering he's seen the judgment of God, and now he's responding with an offering. And the Lord just replies by receiving it as a sweet aroma, but also recognizing that the human heart is evil from youth onward. And so um, this sacrifice of of Noah's didn't do something to fix it. Um, And our sacrifices don't either. So this points us as we begin next week, picking up with the next stage, we're going to jump into Israel. We're, we're missing a lot, but I just want us to leave remembering two things. Number one, that the human heart is evil. Humans are covenant breakers. That's our natural disposition. Uh, but then also there's hope. This is the second thing. We have lines of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and, and we'll trace that with Israel next week. All right, I'll pray briefly. Father, thank you for your love for us despite the fact now, our hearts are evil from youth onward, and we ask that you would work your righteousness in us and through us as we seek to bring life and flourishing to our homes and our families and our communities in this state and our nation. In Christ, we pray. Amen.